Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series in the Book of Romans with James Jordan, and here Jordan is going to be discussing Romans chapter 5. We do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes, and we are excited to let you know that Lexham Press has just released On Earth As In Heaven, the latest from Peter Lightheart, and that book is all of the Theopolis Fundamentals volumes in one book. So to check that out, we have a link down there in the show notes for you. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Romans chapter 5. Okay, Paul begins in chapter 5 here of Romans by saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, his entire argument is that Jew and Gentile are on the same basis in the church. In the church, there's no distinction between a priestly people and a non-priestly people. Everybody is in the same body. And, of course, this is the point he makes in Ephesians at great length. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is down. There's only one new body in Christ. Here, his argument has to do with the law and justification. He has proved that everybody is equally guilty before God, whether it's the law that condemns us or our conscience that condemns us. It's the same content because it comes from God. And then we have seen that he has argued that God's righteousness, God's faithfulness to himself and to us has been manifested apart from the law because the law was given to Israel, but God's salvation is for all people. That is, the law considered as Torah, considered as a law covenant, not the law considered as God's standard of righteousness, which is not in question here. The Jews had perverted that into a boundary between them and the Gentiles in the wrong sense. He's argued against that. And then he's argued that justification is by faith alone because there's absolutely nothing we can do to get the attention of God. If you are not yet created, how can you get God's attention and ask him to create you? If you're absolutely dead, what can you do? I mean, corpses don't do anything. They just lie there and rot. If you're dead, there's nothing you can do to get God's attention and get him to justify you. Therefore... The only way we can possibly be justified is by God who acts first and then calls us simply to put our trust and reliance in him. And God is the one who raises us from the dead. And he says that the act of faith and trust in God grows into a belief in the power of the resurrection. And as we have trust in the power of God to bring new things out of old, to bring life out of the dead to open up dead wounds, then, obviously, following on that, we have the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to obey the law. That sort of has to be the order. You know, we're saved. We learn that God has the power. He gives us the power through the Holy Spirit and the resurrection. And then, in terms of that, we obey God as new resurrected people, not as old unresurrected people. So that's the order he's been arguing, that Abraham trusted God, and the first work that Abraham did, so to speak, was to believe that God could raise people from the dead. He gives the illustration that God could open Sarah's womb, 
Implied in this, of course, is the fact that God told Abram to offer his son Isaac up. And as Abraham left the men behind, he said, Isaac and I will go and offer sacrifice and we will return to you, says in Genesis 22. So Abraham knew that Isaac would come back down the mountain with him. He didn't know how it was going to work out. I imagine Abraham thought that he was going to kill Isaac and then God would bring him back to life again. But he stated flat out that the two of them would return, and so he trusted in the God of the resurrection. Now, Paul goes further, and he pushes his argument into the implications of this salvation that we have, which is both for Jew and Greek and barbarian. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Four, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, Someone would dare even to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, that's the first paragraph we'll look at. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember where Paul starts. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We are under the wrath of God. But now, because of what Jesus has done, we have peace with God. Now, this word peace means the restoration of covenant fellowship. Peace with God means that we are rightly related to God. It's a close synonym to the idea of righteousness. Righteousness means to be rightly related. It's a relational, covenantal idea. And we are always in covenant with God. You can't escape your relationship with God. The only question is, do you hate God or love God? Because you can't be neutral about God. We've seen that God is always making himself known to our consciousness, according to Romans chapter 1. God makes himself known to all men. The creation makes God known to all men, etc. So therefore, you can't be neutral about God. And you're either in a relationship of antagonism to God or one of fellowship and peace with God. You watch people who get divorced. They don't just walk away from the marriage and say, okay, that's it. No, there's all this hate that goes back and forth between the two parties in the divorce. What was formerly love and affection has now turned into hate. You watch people leave the church. People can't just get up and walk out of the church and say, well, I don't like this church anymore, I'm going to leave. Occasionally people do that if they really change their theology and they say, well, I feel like I have to leave because I now have come to believe in infant baptism and predestination and I love all you guys, but I really can't stay here anymore. That happens occasionally, but that's not usually what happens. What happens when people leave the church because they dislike something the elders have done? All the love turns to hate. They send letters back. They go talk, call people around the country and say, this church stinks, it's not really a true church. 
It's demonic. It's evil. The elders are bad. They're oppressive. They're cruel. They're heavy-handed. Whatever. People can't just leave. You know? Because there is this bond that's there, when they leave, they have to go through this excruciating anger in order to try to assure themselves that they've done right in breaking the bond. You all have experienced this. So have most faithful churches at one time or another. And that's the way it is between us and God. We can't be neutral about God. Because this covenant still exists, we're mad at God. And God is mad at us. Man is very bad, and God is what? Very mad, okay? We are very bad, and God is very mad. But now, because of Jesus' death and taking God's anger and taking God's wrath for us, God poured out all his anger on Jesus. Now he's our friend again. And he reaches down to us and makes peace with us and changes our heart so that we want to be at peace with him. So we have peace with God. And now we can climb into his lap and he holds us and we're his friend again. Now he goes on to say, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Jesus introduces us into this new relationship with God. And then he starts talking about exulting. We exult in hope in the glory of God. What's exulting? It's, yahoo! Okay, everybody stand up. Stand up. Now go, yahoo! Yahoo! Okay, that's exulting. You got it. Now you're awake again. He says, we yahoo in the hope of the glory of God. All right? What does that mean? The glory of God. The glory of God. What is glory? I remember one of my professors saying, what is glory? And I said, I don't know. He says, it's kind of hard to define. Well, in the Bible, glory is a visible, artistic thing. It's very difficult to say what art is. It's difficult to say what makes Bach better than Elvis. It's hard to say. If your ear is tuned up, you know it's true. But it's hard to say. There are things you can say, but ultimately it's kind of felt because it's the work of the Holy Spirit to deal in the area of art. The second person is the Word of God, and that's very concrete. But the Holy Spirit is the glory of God, and that's very unconcrete. The wind blows where it lists, you hear the sound thereof, you feel it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. That's what the Spirit is like, and that's what everyone who is born by the Spirit is like. That's what we are like. Okay, that's what it says. So is everyone who is born by the Spirit. Well, that's what glory is like. But when glory appears in the Bible, the glory of God appears as a beautiful cloud around him. This is all in Ezekiel 1. We look inside the cloud and we see fire. And we see kind of a rainbow as the light passes through the cloud. It breaks up. As most of you know, you get light through clouds, you get rainbow, right? As the sun comes out after all this, you might see a rainbow as it goes through the mist. So there's rainbow around God. And as we get closer and closer in, we see that cloud consists of zillions of angels all in careful array around God. And that there is burnished bronze in the middle and beautiful gemstones. And this is all in Revelation chapter 4, where we find out what the cloud of God is like. Now, that's all produced by the Holy Spirit, and that's glory. And glory is the garments that we wear. 
And that's God's garment. He's robed in a rainbow. He's robed in angels. He's robed in glory. And that's what you do, too. That's why we're not all in here just in brown sacks. If the only purpose of wearing clothes was to cover up our private parts because of our shame, we could just all wear brown sacks and it wouldn't make any difference. But that's not how we dress. We dress in colors and whatnot because we want to make ourselves look good, according to whatever your idea of looking good is. And people vary in that. Especially if we want to go somewhere important, we make ourselves look good. We get onto our kids and say, that's sloppy. And you wives get onto your husbands and say, that doesn't match. And you say, you've got to throw that underwear away. It's got holes in it. What if there was a wreck and you got taken to the emergency room? Okay. We dress to show forth our glory, and the way we dress shows forth our personality. And a lot of other things that flow out from us show forth who we are. Well, the Bible tells us that God clothes us in his own glory. We don't become part of God. That's impossible. But God takes the glory garment that's around him and puts that glory garment on us so that we have rainbow around us. We have cloud around us. We have angels around us guarding us so that our foot doesn't dash itself against a stone. Yep, that's right. If you could really see, you'd see that there's a kind of a cloud of angels around everybody in here. Okay, it's gone now. In a sense. So, God is already giving us this, and there will be more of this glory that we get in the world to come. And we exult in the confidence, hope means confidence, that this glory is going to come. Instead of the degradation of Adam and Eve being clothed in animal skins and kicked out of the garden, we're going to come in and be clothed in light, the light of God himself. Now, he says, even in this life, we are on the road to greater glory. And he expresses how this happens here in verses 3 and 4. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Now, that's weird. All the bad things that happen to us cause us to say, we feel great about all the suffering that we're going through. That's true, isn't it? No, not really. But he says that, you know, when we really stop and think about it, we exult in our tribulation and our suffering, knowing that tribulation brings about patience. My Bible says perseverance, but I don't want that word. I want the word patience, because that's a perfectly legitimate way to translate the Greek word, and it's actually a better translation. And patience brings about proven character, heaviness, solidity, and that brings about hope or confidence, and confidence doesn't disappoint. Now, what is happening here? What's happening here is that God wants us to develop patience. God created us good, but he did not create us with patience. Adam and Eve had all these virtues, but they did not have patience. And the reason is you can't create patience in somebody. It's hard to imagine such a thing. How do you make somebody mature? A maturity and patience come as a result of time. And so faith means growing in patience. In Hebrews 6, Paul describes this. We desire that each one of you 
show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, and now this is the same Abraham we've been looking at in Romans, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, he only needs to allude to Abraham, but let's consider Abraham's life. You've heard this before, but let's just review it. God comes to Billy Bob of the Chaldees and says, Your name is no longer Billy Bob, it's Abram, father of many, and calls him into the land of Canaan. And Billy Bob says, Well, that's interesting, Lord, but I don't have any kids. My wife is 60 and I'm 70 and <laughs> doesn't look like we're going to have any. And God says, Billy Bob, your name from now on is Abram, mighty father. Okay, Lord, whatever you say. So he comes into the land of Canaan and everybody says, What's your name? He says, Well, it used to be Billy Bob and now it's mighty father. Oh, really? How many kids do you have? None. Well, this is rather frustrating. As it goes on, week after week, month after month, year after year. And finally, after about 13 years, Abram, formerly Billy Bob, decides to try it out with Hagar. Sarah says, you know, it doesn't look like I'm going to have any kids, and I've got this daughter of men here. She's pretty cute. You know, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were pretty, and they went after them. I explained this to you two years ago. The Christian guys went after the cute pagan girls instead of the ugly Christian girls. There in Genesis 6. Ooh. Just a little morning humor to see if you're awake. I'm trying to wake my... Okay. No more humor then. So now Abram, you know, it probably didn't take a whole lot of persuading for him to visit Hagar. And she has a son... And God says, you can't have this son. I'm going to move him on out. He's now 13, and I'm going to move him and Hagar out. And Abram says, but I don't want you to abandon him. God says, I won't abandon him. He's my son. I'm going to regenerate him. He's going to go to heaven, but I'm going to have to move him out of the household. And now you don't have any kids anymore. And by the way, I'm changing your name to Abraham, which means father of multitude. And Abram says, oh, please. No, no, no. God says, yep, father of multitude. But in a year I'm going to come back and Sarah will have a child. So you know the story. Sarah has Isaac, Mamre, Eshkol, and all the rest of them say, Hi, Abram. He says, My name isn't Abram anymore. It's Abraham. And they say, Hi, <laughs> 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 we heard you got Ishmael out of the family and you don't have any kids and now you're father of a multitude? He says, Well, <laughs> the Lord's ways are strange. And this is real tribulation, man. This is frustrating. But Sarah is supposed to get pregnant. They go, Sarah's <laughs> 90 years old, man. Well, of course, he does have one son, and he has to go around being father of a multitude with one son. Well, this, this is patience, okay? Patience. Now, Adam and Eve were supposed to have patience. How do we know that? Because it says in Genesis 2, now let me just review this to you. I know that most of you got this down, but... I want to review it, just make sure everybody gets it. Out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree pleasing to the sight and good for food. Every tree was good for food, including the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then he tells Adam, 
Of every tree you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Adam names the animals, and then God makes Eve. And then God says to Adam and Eve, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth, and every tree that has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Now, you don't have to have a massive IQ to figure out that sooner or later they'd be able to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it was made as good for food, and God told them that they would eat of all the trees. So the prohibition on the tree of knowledge was temporary. Now, what was God trying to develop in Adam? Patient faith. Now, patience is something that we get from the word no. No yields patience. Now, it's not the no that says you may never, ever do this. We don't get patience from thou shalt not kill. We don't get patience from thou shalt not commit adultery. Because God doesn't say eventually you're going to get to commit adultery, but just not now. We get patience from God saying this is real good, but you can't have it yet. You have to wait. We learn patience from not having sex until our wedding night. That's how you learn patience. And when you're a kid, that's when you learn patience, because that's when you hear no a lot, right? Do you hear the word no a lot? Can I cross the street? No. Can I have a second dessert? No. But dessert is good, yep, but you can't have a second dessert. Can I drive the car? No. Well, I've got my license. Can I drive to Florida? No. Can I stay out after 12 o'clock? No. Can I go on a date with this 25-year-old guy? No. Can I? No. But no. Can I have a beer? No. Can I have a cigar? No. But you're having one. I'm grown up. You can't have one. You're just a teenager. Well, can I have a beer? No. Well, you're having one. I'm an adult. Can I have sex? No. Why not? You're not married. I am. Sex is fun, but you can't have it. No. No produces patience. That's why God says no all the time in the Bible. Okay? He says, thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. He says, you can't have any pork. Lord, can I have a slice of ham? No. But ham is good. That's right. Someday I'll get to have it. But not now. This is what Aaron says. Lord, can I drink wine with you in your tent? No. But no. But wine is good, and you say wine is good. Yep. Someday people will drink wine with me, but not till after Jesus comes. For now, no. No produces patience. If you don't tell your kids no, they don't learn patience. If you use the coaxing method rather than the confrontation method of child rearing, your kids won't learn no, and they won't learn patience. Here, honey, let's just go play in the backyard instead of playing out here near the street. They don't learn anything. No, you got to say, don't you dare go in the street. Don't you dare even put your foot in the street. So what does the kid do? Make sure you're watching and go. <laughs> then you say, well, I warned you, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it is me. And then you spank them and say, no to the street. But you cross the street, yeah, but I'm an adult. You don't even put your foot in the street. So about 15 minutes later, your kid is making sure you're watching and goes, you say, I told you, and this is going to hurt you a lot more than it is me, and you paddle them. And about 20 minutes later, kid makes sure you're watching and goes, 
You say, I warned you, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it is me, and you paddle them. And that usually does it. Three times does it. We live in a Trinitarian rhythm. <laughs> I'm not making this up. This is true. You know what I mean? Do you? Do you? Okay. Now, if I asked you that about six times, you'd start to get mad. But if I ask you three times, that's okay. But this is true. This is how it is. You reinforce things three times and it works. You can't give up. As a parent, you have to be patient. It is the frustrations that God brings into our lives that cause us to grow in patience. God wants us to grow in patience. We know that we need reformation in our society, but we're not getting it. It ain't going to happen anytime soon. And we're frustrated. Just think of all the good things that God has told you. And the thing is, the more mature you become as a Christian, and the more you understand about the kingdom and how great it is, and the more you understand about the law and how it would heal all of our problems in society, the more frustrated you become. Which means the greater opportunities for maturity and wisdom you have. People who only know a little bit about the Bible are only marginally frustrated by what's going on. Now, frustration, God's frustration of our lives, which he has a way of doing a lot. Have you ever noticed that about your life, that God frustrates you a lot? Frustration is supposed to produce patience. Now, it can produce a backlash. And if you lash out and you always fight and you always win, you never learn patience. We've all known people who never let themselves lose. They always have the last word. They always fight back. Those people will never mature. They will never get patience. And they will never get proven character. They will always be unstable. Maturity comes when the frustrations come and you say, okay, I'll just have to live with this and trust God and wait until he vindicates me. A long, maybe 20 years. It may not be in this life at all when you're vindicated. If you fight back and vindicate yourself every single time, you will not acquire patience. Now, what does patience give you? It gives you inner stability. And that's what you don't have to start with. You get from patience and from maturity a long time sense, which is what the word hope means here. Children do not have a long time sense. Children experience many days within one day. Little kids now, you little kids... They have a whole day in the morning. Then they have a whole day in the afternoon. And they have a whole day at night. Can you remember back when you were a little kid? Days lasted a long time. Now when you get to be my age, Christmas comes too soon. You know, you start getting a sense of the year. Your mind starts to move in longer spans of time. If you acquire proven character, you develop a long time sense. That's why classical music is the way it is. Because classical music developed in such a way that it has a long line of music. A piece lasts 15, 20 minutes and lasts a long time. That's not to say that short pieces are evil, but one of the reasons that classical music can have a long line of time is because it reflects the development in Christianity of a longer time sense. You become aware of the first theme, the second theme, and their interaction, and then the recapitulation and the coda and all that, you get a sense of a long line, as it's called. And I could give other illustrations. Long stories, the development of the novel, long storylines, 
in our society reflects the influence of Christianity. Well, in our own particular lives, God wants us to develop this long sense. He wants us to develop inner stability. The word glory in the Bible means, on the one hand, this shining radiance around ourselves, but the actual meaning of the word glory is what? Heavy. It means heavy. Heavy, man. And we want to become heavy, have proven character and stability. So, the frustrations that God brings into our lives brings about patience. And patience brings about this inner stability. The gyroscope in our heart goes faster and faster. And so we become more unflappable. It is the development of unflappability in our lives. Okay? Unflappability is one of the virtues that we want to develop. Because we have a gyroscope in here, and we want it to go faster and faster so that we become more stable. You getting the handle on this? We get proven character, and proven character develops hope, the long time sense. Now, God wants us to mature so that when we are old, and this is not something that's going to happen when you're 20. This is a lifespan. When you are the elder age, age of eldership in the Bible, 55 or 60, real eldership, what the Bible means by an elder, an old guy, you should have a long time sense. Which means that the elders can sense what needs to be done and can set in motion the things that will bring about a future. We are created to grow up to be like God. And God initiates covenants that produce futures. God comes to Abraham and starts a covenant with him which produces a future. It produces the Hebrews. Then God comes to Moses and gives him the law and that produces a civilization. Then God comes to David and sets up the kingship, and that produces a civilization because it changes how people think. Augustine writes the city of God, and that produces a civilization. Calvin writes his institutes, and that produces a civilization. God wants us to mature in our God-likeness to where we can be prophetic founders of future civilizations. We will be like fathers. We will be like founders. That's the goal. That's what an elder is. An eldership, if we get there, of course, you can live your whole life and never get any of this. If you don't develop patience, if you don't develop stability, and you never get a long time sense, and you never have a sense of what needs to be done, then you can't teach your children or teach those around you and set in motion the things that will produce a true future. But that's what we want. All right. We want to develop this long time sense so that we can be founders, we can be Abrahams. Each and every one of us is supposed to have the faith of Abraham. And what did Abraham do? He was the founder of many civilizations. So that's who you are. You are. You are. You are. We're all supposed to be Abrahams. Or each of us is supposed to be the founder of many civilizations. Of course, if we've got thousands and millions of Christians all founding the future civilization, which is the same one, man, that's going to really be something. But I'm afraid that most Christians don't mature to eldership, and so they don't have a sense of the civilization to be founded. But that's what he's talking about here. You're talking dominion. You're talking rejoicing in those frustrations and tribulations because those frustrations and tribulations are God's way of making you patient. And it's good to go through them in your youth. 
Then you learn patience, you get that gyroscope going fast, and you get stable, and you begin to have a long time sense. And that's hope. You begin to be able to prophesy. Priest, king, prophet is the order in the Bible. A priest is a servant, does what the master says. The king has some rule and authority, but the prophet has the long time sense and can actually found a civilization. Abraham is called a prophet, and he founds a civilization. Moses is the prophet. He founds the civilization. Samuel is the prophet. He founds the kingdom. The prophets are civilization founders, and that's what we want to grow up to become. Got a handle on this now? Look, it says here that hope, this long time since here in verse 5, the long time since does not disappoint. If we really develop the long time since as Christians, we won't be disappointed. Now, how does all this happen? He says, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That really qualifies the tribulation. We exult in our tribulation because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. Now, that doesn't mean hope doesn't disappoint because God's love has been poured out. That doesn't really connect. But we can exult in the frustrations and pain that God brings into our lives. And sometimes the pain is severe. And the severity of that pain shows us just how much God needs to do to us because of our depravity. But the pain and the frustration that God brings into our life, we can rejoice in it because God's love has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is pouring God's love into your life. Now, do you feel that this morning? Do you feel God's love poured into your heart? so that you pour it out to other people as you want another one another? Do you feel that? I don't. So since I'm honest, you can be too. We have to love by faith. That's a Bill Bright phrase, but it's a great phrase. If there's any contribution to theology that Bill Bright has made, that's it. We love by faith. We trust that God has given us this love even though we don't feel it. And as Jay Adams says, love is doing, not necessarily feeling. Now, I want to tell you what God is pouring into your heart right now. And I have uh, Francis Schaeffer to thank for this. Love is patient. God is pouring patience into your heart today. You feel impatient? Well, just relax and trust and apprehend by faith, grab it by faith, that God is pouring patience into your heart. And you don't have to blow up at your kids today. Love is kind. You have a, an edge on you as you deal with other people. God is pouring kindness into your heart. He's pouring it in. Not just a little bit. He's filling you up with it. It's like Cairo syrup just coming all over you. Okay? Kindness is being poured into you. Love is not jealous. That's being poured into you. Love does not brag, doesn't seek its own. It's not arrogant. That's being poured into you right now. And if you just believe it and lay hold of it and say, God, oh no, I was starting to brag. Lord, but not bragging is being poured into me. I believe it. I lay hold of it. Fill me with your spirit. Yeah, love will be poured into you. 
Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Notice all these no's here. Not seek its own. Not act unbecomingly. Not jealous. Not bragging. Not arrogant. Not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Notice all these no's here. Yes, God is the God of no. What meaning of no don't you understand? Study the Bible and you will understand all the meanings of no. Love rejoices with the truth. Love puts up with all kinds of things. You wives, remember that with your husbands. Remember to be kind to us. The ability to put up with your husband is being poured into your heart. Love believes all things. Love puts the best construction on other people's actions. That's what it says, okay? Love puts the best construction on other people's actions. Hopes all things. Endures all things. You think you can't take it anymore? You know, trouble comes in droves. Everybody has experienced that. You know, you lose your job and you come home and your kid's been hit by a car and he's in the hospital. And then the IRS wants to audit you. The next day you find that out. That's kind of the way it happens sometimes. But God's love is poured into your heart and that means that you can endure this and you can be patient through these frustrations which will produce proven character. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about this further before we move on. Modern Christianity has a doctrine of man, a doctrine of human nature that's about this deep. Almost all evangelicals are followers of B.F. Skinner. They say they're not, but they are. They believe that human beings are easily manipulated and you know, if you come in contact with something bad, it's just going to ruin your life, and that there is no deep complexity to human life, and the result is evangelicals are full of advice books. And advice books are fundamentally Pelagian. Now, that's not to say that, I mean, I know that when you first have children, you think, what can I do about this? I have no idea what to do with this baby here. That's why you bring him to be baptized and give him up to God. Because you confess that you are impotent and haven't the foggiest idea how to raise a kid. That is, if you have any sense at all, you know that. And the more they grow, the more aware you become that you haven't the foggiest idea how to raise kids. Thank goodness that God says that he will raise them for us. And don't tell me that it's rear instead of raise. In English, it's either one. All right. Just depends on what century you live in. Now, the reality is that human beings are almost as complex and infinite as God because we're made in God's image. And that means there's no way you can just give a little piece of three-point advice or 12-step advice to somebody and settle things for them. Those things do help, but they're not the final answer. You don't know enough about yourself. You don't begin to understand yourself. So how can you begin to understand other people? We haven't the foggiest idea of what we're really like. Only God does. And sometimes when God wants to change us, he does surgery on us way down inside where we can't perceive it. And sometimes God takes us through horrible experiences, and we have no idea why, and we don't know what he's trying to teach us, 
And when we come out the other side, we still don't know what he's trying to teach us. And ten years later, we don't know what he's trying to teach us. But you know what? Other people can tell that we're a little bit different. Because God has to deal with the depths of human depravity that we're not aware of. If you start trying to search your heart to find all your sins, you can go on forever. Because sin is hatred of God and God goes on forever. So where can it stop if you're searching your sins? No, God does surgery. And that's why God takes people through dark nights of the soul. A dark night of the soul is what the Puritans call an abandonment or a desertion, where God deserts you. All of a sudden, he's not there anymore. Now, if you are over 40 or 45, you probably have been through this. And God deserts you and he stays gone, not for a day or a week, but for months. And you start reading in the Psalms and you find the Psalms talk about this. My favorite Psalm is Psalm 88. When I teach on Ecclesiastes, I always read this. This is God doing depth surgery on the soul. Yahweh, God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before thee. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. My soul has had enough troubles. My life is drawn near to hell. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they're cut off from your hand. You've put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. Not just one day, but day after day after day after day. seems like God is gone and you're in agony. And you say, what's happening here? You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an object of loathing to them. I'm so depressed. I'm like Joe. I've got this cloud of rain over my head all the time. Nobody wants to be around me. I'm shut up and cannot go out. My eye is wasted away because of affliction. I've called upon you every day, Yahweh. I've spread out my hands to you. You don't answer. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave and your faithfulness in the place of destruction? I, O oh Lord, have cried out to you for help. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Yahweh, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. When I look back in the past, it seems like I've always been going through this. I'm suffering your terrors. I'm overwhelmed. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They've surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me completely. You have removed my lover, my wife, and my friend far from me, and my acquaintances are in darkness. The end. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, that's not where it's supposed to stop. It's supposed to say, but then, Lord, you came back to me. No, it doesn't say that. I mean, this is a great song. Because <laughs> it's real. So forget those praise choruses, man. This is a reality. At least sometimes in our lives. And usually sometime around the time that a man gets to the point where he realizes he's not going to do all the things he thought he was going to do when he was young. God settles in the old dark night of the soul. Sometime around 35 or 40, you go through it. I've been through it, and I never hope I have to go through that again. But I'll tell you something. It stabilizes you on the inside in an amazing way. And this is the way God deals with us. You young people don't know about this yet. You know, I would say to somebody who wanted to be an elder in the church, I'd say, tell me about your dark night of the soul. Because if you haven't been through that, if you don't know what that psalm's talking about, you're not ready to be an elder. 
See my point? Because other people are going to be going through that, and you need to be able to tell them, look, <laughs> hang in there. It will pass. Okay, this is what Paul is talking about here. How God is making us godlike and building us up. That's what this salvation means. My stars were running out of time here. But I had to expound on that. The Holy Spirit, we have to love by faith when we go through that experience, but He gives us this confidence that we can lay hold of, and it brings about this maturity in this long time since. Then He goes back in verse 6 here now, and He says, For while we were still helpless, we had nothing to offer, at the right time Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for the ungodly. And he says, scarcely for a righteous man, one will hardly die. A person who is faithful in obeying the law, that's okay. You probably wouldn't die for him. Perhaps for a good man, somebody who is really loving and kind and going out for other people, Mother Teresa, you might be willing to give your life for somebody like that. But, of course, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we hated him, we hated God's guts, we hated everything about him. Jesus died for us. The Messiah, the Anointed One, died for us. Much more then, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Saved. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life. Now, His life there means His resurrection and ascension and enthronement. His new life. His resurrection is given to us. And saved here means saved in every respect. doesn't mean just saved from the wrath of God. It means the total Christian life is lived by the power of Christ's resurrection, which is given to us. And not only this, but we also exult in God. Okay? That's the Georgia exult. I don't know what the Oregonian exult is. We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. Now let's finish chapter 5. We've got to get this much done this morning. This is what God has done for us. He's going to make us mature by taking us through all this stuff. And the reason He can do it, the reason we can stand it, is because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And the reason God is doing it is because He's applying the resurrection of Jesus to us so that we are growing in resurrection life, in new power life. Now he goes back and he talks about Adam and Christ. And he returns to his theme of saying everybody's in the same boat, Jew and Gentile. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. What is this spreading of death? Well, you can see it if you study the law. Ceremon- uncleanness is ceremonial death. You become unclean and you touch somebody else, death spreads to them. And that's the way the laws of uncleanness work. In more general sense, the curse of death spread to all men because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin put us all under death, and every one of us has said amen to that by adding our own sins to Adam's sin. There's nobody out there that received original sin and then didn't add anything to it. <laughs> all of us have said yes, amen to Adam's sin and have added our own second witness to his sin. And so death spreads to us, not just because of Adam, but because we have affirmed it. Then he says in verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. If there's no law to break, then how do you measure sin? But 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So if death was in the world, and death comes from breaking the law, and the law hadn't been given yet, what does that mean? Well, it means there was already a law. The law was what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. The law, the law of Moses, hadn't been given yet. And he says, the law had not been given yet, but sin was in the world. And death comes as a result of sin. And death reigned. Therefore, there was in some sense, the law was already there in essence for all men. Now, consider again the Jew-Gentile question. The Jew says, we have the law. The Gentiles don't. Paul says, wait a minute. Everybody's dying. That means everybody has the law. So the law is not really a unique privilege to Israel. The law is given to all men in Adam. And again in Noah, God gives instructions to Noah that are for all men. And so the specification of the law to Moses doesn't mean the Gentiles don't have law at all. They do. And this death reigned even over those who would not sin in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him to come. Well, death reigns over animals, death reigns over babies, death reigns over people who don't have the opportunity in their lives to mature to the point where they can do what Adam did, but still, because of their unity with Adam through original sin, it reigns over them. But now, he says, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died... Adam's sin brought death to many. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. In other words, Adam lost something in his sin, but when Jesus saves us, he gives us more than Adam lost. That's the whole argument here. Now, what is he talking about? Adam was supposed to grow up and develop patience and become mature until he would be given the reward, which was what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you study it in the Bible, has to do with rule and authority. Knowledge of good and evil means rule and authority. Kings and judges have knowledge of good and evil. It says in Deuteronomy that small children do not have knowledge of good and evil. Barzillai comes to David and says, I'm 80 years old. I'm getting kind of feeble-minded. I no longer have knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil is... The mature ability to judge, to be mature, to have that long time sense. Adam didn't get there, but Jesus did. What Adam lost was life and the tree of life, but Jesus gives us both life and rule, both bread and wine. Bread in the Bible has to do with life. Wine, if you look at it, wine is always pictured as being served to kings. Pharaoh has a cupbearer. Ahasuerus has a cupbearer. Artaxerxes has a cupbearer. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Wine is a sign of rule. Bread is a sign of life. God gives us both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not saying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was grapes now. I'm just saying that they are symbolically parallel. Jesus is king. We get life, but in union with Christ, we also rule. That's what he's going to say here. So verse 15 again, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died and lost life, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Because we get life and rule from Jesus. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. On the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. 
judgment, death. On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification before God's law court. For if by the transgression of the one Adam, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Adam lost life, Jesus gives us life and rule. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even through one act of righteousness there resulted justification, that is, life, resurrection life, to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, excluded from God, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous, restored to covenant relationship with God. And the law came in that transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just in conclusion, let me comment on this business of the law coming in, that transgression might increase. God gave a law to Adam and Eve. Don't eat that tree until I tell you you can. They broke it. Now, when the law comes in, God gives a whole bunch of rules to Israel. That multiplies the possibilities of rebellion against God. The more you know about God, the more there is to hate. The more you know about God, the more there is to rebel against. So when God amplifies his law and extends it on out and gives all the details, our rebellion against God can become multiplied and become much more specific. Now, the result of that is that Israel, the Gentiles rebel against God, okay? The Gentiles rebel against God, and they're in sin. But Israel knows a whole lot more about God, so what about Israel? They have more to rebel against, and they become worse than the other nations. Now, Paul is really, by implication, sticking it to the Jews here. You think you're better than the other nations. In fact, you're worse because one of the effects of the law, this is not the only effect of the law. He'll have more positive things to say about the law later on. But one of the effects of the law is it gives you more to rebel against. So the Jews became worse than the other nations because they were more epistemologically self-conscious in their hatred of God. Now let me just read you a couple of proof texts and then we'll be done. And they're from Ezekiel. And they're a little bit rough, but we're going to read them anyway. Ezekiel 16, 32-34, God says this, You adulterous wife who takes strangers while under the protection of her husband, men give gifts to harlots, but you gave gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus, you're different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus, you're weird. And then verses 44, that was Ezekiel 16:32 to 34. Now, Ezekiel 16:44 to 52. The law multiplies transgression and Israel is worse than the other nations, not better. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and children. You loathe the father and the son, is what this means. Your mother was a Hittite, your father was an Amorite, your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Yea, you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you have acted more corruptly in your conduct than they. 
As I live, declares the Master Yahweh, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them according to what I saw. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus you have made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. In other words, Sodom looks good compared to you, Judah. Also bear your disgrace in that you have made judgments favorable to your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. Yes, be ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you made your wicked sisters appear righteous. And finally, Ezekiel 23, verse 11. Now, this is a reference to Judah. Her sister Aholibah saw this, yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she, and her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister. And then it goes on. Makes it very clear. Now, see, the Jews were saying, we're better than the other nations. We have the law. Paul says, the law multiplies transgressions, and the result is you're worse than the other nations. So thank goodness, if you're a Jew, thank goodness God saved you because it was easier for God to save the Gentiles than it was for him to save you. You'll see how Paul is continuing with this theme in Romans and everything else is woven into it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.